Today's reading is Matthew 27, starting with verse 58 to the next chapter, um, verse 10. It can be found on page 920 of the Bible's next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, the deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you to pray with me as we reflect on this passage. Our gracious God, we come into this place and um, young or old, we are in just, our lives have and are going to have different stories. We might come into this place full of questions and disbelief. Um, some of us come and we wish that our faith or our beliefs in you were as lively as they once were. And we wonder, will it ever feel like that again? And some of us come and we, we just say, uh, the things I've been going through lately are so front and center in my life, I can't even think about what I believe. I'm just trying to get by. Just trying to hold it together. And others of us come... Joyful, thankful, perhaps you've been answering things that have looked like prayers in our life. And so we attribute that to you and we're, we're joyful. From all these different chaotic places, 
Um, we come into this room and the truth is we're all the same and that we're more of a mess than we care to admit to each other. We're all more broken than we want the person sitting next to us to know. And your message tells us, the gospel of Jesus and the empty tomb tells us, that what you have done has made us more loved and accepted by you than we ever imagined. So we live in the mixture of knowing how broken we are and yet how deep and far you have gone to rescue us and make us loved permanently loved, permanently embraced in your presence through the death and resurrection of Jesus. With that grace now, speak to us in this brief time considering your scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, a couple of months ago, uh, we started a group, and um, it was an eight-week pod, and pods are our name for small groups. You know, you've got to have cool names for things. And so we do pods at City Life Church. And this group was going to follow, we followed a workbook called the Tangible Kingdom Primer. And on this second meeting that we had in someone's home, we opened up the workbook and it was going to have us talking about things like um, how God works in unexpected times when you're kind of on the way to something that you think is the thing, then God connects you with others and has the real work God wants to accomplish happen unexpectedly, and how that's how it is in the Bible. So God interrupts, and God works through interruptions. And then the other, one other thing that that week was going to have us discuss was uh, to consider who in our life might, might be there in order for us to be an advocate for them. What if, what if God has placed someone in your life in this way? So we were, did our chit-chat, and then we got into our study, and we were asked, answering the first question, and this very important topic in this workbook when someone burst through the door, the front door, after ringing the doorbell a hundred times, and it was a woman who was, just had this terrified look on her face. She's in an abusive relationship, and she was just looking for a safe haven, and she slammed the door behind her and stood in front of it with this look of shock. And so, so there we are, a group of us sitting in that situation, really exactly what this person needs right now And this book is talking about who might be placed in your life as an advocate that you need to advocate for. Who, where might there be an interruption where God is at work? And we all just kind of caught the irony immediately. And none of us, by the end of that night, were um, upset or complaining about the fact that it, you know, our meeting took like an hour longer than normal or what we expected. None of us were complaining that we didn't get to question number two, you know, on the workbook about tangible kingdom. Because, because the things that we were going to conceptually talk about as ideas happened. The book itself, the study that we were supposed to figure out, that happened to us. And um, you, know, you might be sitting here and you know that church people and people who get together on Easter like this are going to talk about Jesus and they're going to talk about the resurrection. And you might know what some of that means. But you might even be sitting here and... In a sense, it might still be a lot of distant concepts for you that haven't happened to you personally. It's interesting how in the early church, when the scriptures were being written, and the gospels were being written, it seems like the, the, a lot of the talk about the resurrection, about Jesus coming out of the tomb, was very matter-of-fact um, and unprofound in the way that it was talked about. So we have even this, this thing that we still say today, this tradition of saying, He is risen. 
He is risen indeed. Have you ever thought about how unprofound of a creed that is for Easter? It's kind of like saying, it happened. Sure enough. (laughs) And yet that seems to be the kind of the vibe around Easter early on. What more can you say? It's a profound thing. So all you can say is, it happened. And in a lot of ways then, has it happened to you? In those early days, um, it seemed almost indisputable that Jesus rose from the dead because he, sh- he was seen by so many people that you could go and talk to. So that the Apostle Paul at one point publicly says, this didn't happen in a corner. Surely these things haven't escaped you. Another point he, he argues about the resurrection and how it happened and says um, that Jesus showed himself to 500 people at one point when he was alive. It happened. But has it happened to you? I want to consider really briefly, four stories of it happening. And, um, you know, we're going to look at them in this passage. Four different people, really. And the first one is Joseph of Arimathea. It happened to Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea is interesting because as biblical scholars and people who study scripture talk about, he just kind of comes in and then leaves the story of the Bible. He's got one line, basically, you know, if it's a play. He's he's, He's just got this small part. It says he's a rich man from Arimathea, and he goes to Pilate with a request. He's a wealthy person, and he's got connections. He's, not a, you know, he's the kind of person who goes to someone in power with a request. Not everyone's like that. He's got some resources. He's got a tomb at his disposal, property. He's got things at his disposal, and he's got connections. And what the story basically says is that he gets those things that he has get enlisted into this story of resurrection. And this is how it happens to Joseph of Arimathea. And with Joseph of Arimathea, our imaginations are brought into a unique place. He's listed in every gospel as the one who went and asked for the body. And so we're led to imagine and to consider that there was this person who... um, felt and held the weight of Jesus' dead body. His legs and arms and head flopping without life. We're talking about someone who when you tease it out in your mind, you're imagining someone who smelled the dead body, who smelled the dried blood and the dried sweat and probably worse. And you're talking about someone who touched the cold, lifeless, stiff skin of the body of Jesus and spent a few hours with the body of Jesus, not once seeing the rib cage rise and fall on the lifeless corpse of Jesus. And you can imagine if you were in the first century and a bunch of Jewish people said something that no one would say in those days, that he rose from the dead. And you say, well, how? And Well, ask him and ask him. We saw him alive after the crucifixion. The next thing you would say was, well, then he wasn't dead. Certainly he wasn't dead. And the reply would be in this early Jewish Christian community, you need to talk to Joseph of Arimathea. Sit down for a half hour with him, and he'll tell you. Joseph of Arimathea. And then another story, another, some people really that make up the second one are the guards. Have you ever seen a security guard 
guard, a private security guard guarding a property that's off hours or a parking lot, you know? Um, and you look at it and you just go, wow, what a job. Poor person. That's what they're spending their whole day doing. I don't think the guards who got the assignment this particular day to go guard the tomb were excited as they walked to this assignment. I think they probably were the ones with low seniority, or they, and they definitely as they're walking along, they had this feeling like they had drawn the short straw. You can imagine the conversations with these guards walking along. Who are, what are, we, who are we doing this for? Some, what, some Jewish, unknown, insignificant Jewish teacher guy that ended up getting himself killed? Why, what? Why do his disciples want us to guard his tomb? What's going to happen with this insignificant guy? What, it's not his disciples who want us to guard? It's his enemies who want us to guard his tomb? This is weird. What is going on with this? This is going to be the, the biggest waste of time I've ever spent. And so they go and they're standing there and then... I imagine them talking about more about, well, what have you heard about Jesus? Well, what have you heard? And as they go through the, the trial and the teachings and the death and the, everything they all collectively knew, I imagine the questions just building. Why are these people obsessed with this guy? Then, of course, the angel appears. There's light. There's an earthquake. And the stone rolls away. And now the closest thing to a dead body around this tomb is these tough, hefty warrior guards who have flopped onto the ground like dead men because they're so afraid. Certainly after that, they were asking even more questions about, maybe there's something to all this. What is going on? The guards. It happened to the guards. And it happened to the women. Mary and Mary are mentioned. It happened to the women This is one of the most interesting parts about the resurrection stories of the early church is that women were listed as the prominent first order of business witnesses in a culture where the testimony of women was not considered credible for an event. And so many have pointed out that this story in all the Gospels as it's told is not written like a story you would make up to gain credibility. It sort of just has the feeling like it happened. This is how, if you're not going to believe it, how it happened, then you're probably not going to believe it at all. Here's how it happened. The women. You know, the women were these, these followers of Jesus. They had been around the ministry of Jesus. They had been involved, <clears throat> caring for a lot of the needs of him and the disciples. And they had been in there for the long haul. And they're in this story. They're kind of the prime characters in what we read because they're there when Joseph brings the body and they're there when the angels come on Sunday. And it's interesting that what the angels have to say to them seems to be the same thing that Jesus has to say to them. The angel says, don't be afraid and go. And then Jesus meets them along the way and says, don't be afraid and go. Friends, Easter happened to these different people. Maybe... You know, maybe you're kind of like a Joseph of Arimathea and you have a certain amount of resources and a certain amount of um, connections perhaps. And perhaps you're getting a sense that God is going to enlist you in some maybe simple but profound way, just some way that you have the resources or the connections to be of help for 
it to happen now through you, for the resurrection life to work through you. Or maybe you're like the guards and uh, you feel like maybe even sitting here today, you feel like you got the short straw, you know? Like this is the last place you thought you'd be on an Easter morning if we would have asked you a year ago. And yet here you are. And maybe like also with the guards, the questions and the cacophony of puzzling over all of these events and all of the obsessions over Jesus, as much as you want to push it away, it's starting to build to a point where you have to just, you're starting to say, maybe I got to, Maybe I've got to pursue this a little bit more and investigate for myself. Maybe it's actually starting to happen to me. Or maybe you're like the women, you know. Maybe, you're, maybe you've got a long, devout history of, of being a good person, of helping in the church maybe, of following Jesus maybe. And yet the resurrection needs to happen to you in a new way. Do not be afraid and go. Maybe that's the simple message to you. You know why the resurrection says that to all of us? Because the resurrection, if you look at it, then you say, wait a second, here's this guy that had power over death. Why did he go to the cross in the first place? Why didn't he use that power earlier? And the reason then you start to realize that he had to go to the cross. He went there for you. He went deep into death, deep into alienation from his father so that you would never have to so that you could live and move forward with every possible conceivable fear that you live with day in and day night, that the, the empty tomb says to those fears, they're meaningless, they're gone, if you are fully living in the reality of the risen Jesus. So do not be afraid and go. You need to hear that today? Do not be afraid, go into your work, in your daily life at your job, with a sense of expectation of how God has placed you there for the resurrection to keep happening through you. Don't be afraid. Go out into those neighbors that you don't know. You don't know their names. Maybe they bother you. Don't be afraid. Go. What do you have to be afraid of? Don't be afraid. Go. Don't be afraid. Go into your family gatherings today, even with those people that really bother you. (laughs) That's what family always brings us. Don't be afraid. Go and love others as if you've got nothing else in the world to do and your ego is not wrapped up in whether you get what you think you deserve in return. Don't be afraid. The empty tomb says everything's different now between you and God. You've got the one thing that is your security in all the world the embrace of God the Father through the forgiveness of Jesus. He is alive. Don't be afraid. Go. Um, Friends, maybe you noticed I said there's going to be four stories. Uh, And there's one more. And Jen, why don't you come up? Jen joined today, and she shared with me her story when she was doing her membership meeting. And, And I said, you know, that is a story I think we haven't had a story like yours. And she kind of said, what, you want me to tell it? And I said, yeah. And she said, because I always, I've been doing this a lot lately, so you know if you hang out with me a little too long, I might tell you, you've got to tell your story. But I thought, this is just a story that I think we need to hear, and it'll speak to us. So I'll just give you the, the stand. Great. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I didn't set you up with a mic. There you go. You can take it off if you want to. Okay. 
Um, so it's true. When Mark uh, first asked me to speak today and share my story, I actually thought he was just being polite. Kind of thing to people, right? Oh, your story's great. You should share it. Okay. Um, you know, I never really thought I had one of those stories where, you know, I once was blind and then God came to me in a vision and I woke up the next day, I could see, and now that's why I'm not I don't have that kind of story. Um, but Mark, it turns out, was not kidding, and he really did want me to share my story. So here I am. Um, this is just my story about how I found myself being pursued by God. I became a Christian because of Indiana Jones. And <laughs> we'll come to that part of the story in a little bit. Um, but really, I did not grow up in a Christian household. Um, and I really didn't know very much about Christianity or religion in general growing up. Um, I grew up in a Chinese household. And for those of you who have been around Chinese people, it's, it's all sort of true, right? My, what it meant was that I lived um, with the expectation of hard work, achievements, honoring my parents. Um, and I was a good kid. You know, I, I played the piano. I played the violin. I was on the math team. It's all true. Um, and if I came back with a 98 on my test, I'd have a lot of explaining to do to my parents about where those last two points went. Why did you miss those last two points? Um, but as far as everyone was concerned, uh, including myself, I had done pretty well, I had earned, and I had earned it. I had earned it through hard work, sweat, and tears. This was mine, my achievement. What I thought about Christianity growing up at the time, or religion, was that it was just a crutch, a crutch for people that needed that kind of thing. Um, maybe it was a nice social activity for people on the weekends. But I was going to an Ivy League college, and, and I was good. I was good. I was not looking for religion, and certainly I was not looking for Christianity. Um, my first encounter with a group of Christians was quite by accident um, when I was visiting colleges. I was staying with a friend of mine who was a Christian, and she invited me to go to a meeting, a Christian meeting, and I politely, or maybe not so politely, turned her down. Um, I had zero interest in going to a, some radical Christian meeting, and as far as I was concerned, every Christian was radical. Mm -hmm. um, I made plans to meet up with her afterwards. Uh, but as it turned out, as it so often does in my life, my plans were not God's plans. Through a series of fateful and unintentional encounters, I was really trying to go to a symphony meeting, um, I ended up going to that very same Christian meeting that I'd been invited to earlier. And it was not through my friends, it was through people I had just met. Hmm. At this meeting, I can say for the very first time, I met a group of Christians, people who were following Christ. And there was something different about them. Um, there was something different about the way they interacted with each other. There was something different about the way they interacted with me. And I met a woman who shared with me her story. Her story about how she grew up in a non-Christian household with Chinese parents who had expectations that she live a certain successful, stable life. And I understood that story, except that her story goes on, where she chose to follow Jesus against their wishes and expectations. She gave up pursuing an MBA to answer a call to Christian ministry, and I just couldn't understand that. She seemed perfectly smart and perfectly intelligent and perfectly normal, and yet here she was, following Jesus in a, in a less than lucrative, less than prestigious sort of occupation. 
as I struggled sort of with understanding how this woman could have made these choices, we struck up a conversation. And she challenged me to think, really think about what I believed, what I was living for, and why. And I realized I'd never really given it much thought. I'd always just done whatever someone else had told me. I remember leaving that weekend at Yale, all these thoughts brewing in my head, senior in high school. And when I got home, I told a friend of mine, the one friend that I knew went to church every Sunday, I said, hey, I loved it, I'm going to Yale, this is great, and can I go to church with you on Sunday? In retrospect, it's totally, totally bizarre. <laughs> um, but really, it was just the beginning of God opening my eyes to his hand in my life. I could start seeing his fingerprints everywhere. For example, I went to church for the first time with my friend, and the sermon was all about God outside of those church walls. And the example the pastor gave was that of a college student who came to church for the first time and didn't know when to stand, didn't know when to sit, didn't know what to say, didn't know what to sing, and he said that God was in that person's life. And I thought he could have been talking directly at me that entire time. So I started looking into things myself, reading different books, First about Buddhism and the other religions that were more familiar to me, and then finally about Christianity. After all my reading and exploring, I got to a point where I had a lot of facts, facts in my head. It was easy for me to believe in a creator God. I just had to look around me and I could see the beauty of God's design. I could believe that, that's easy. It was also easy for me to see my own issues. I mean, I was a good kid, but none of us are perfect, and certainly I was not perfect. And I understood that a perfect God can't possibly be perfect and yet still tolerate someone as flawed as me. Um, but I just couldn't commit to that Jesus Christ bit. It was a little too much, a little too radical. I had been told by people that Jesus, sinless, died on the cross on my behalf, paid my debt, and made me perfect in the sight of God. Hmm. But if I believed that, what were people going to say? What were my friends going to say? What was my family going to say? And how was I even going to begin to have that conversation with him? One night, I was having dinner with another friend of mine who was also a Christian. And I was telling her this very same story about seeing God's fingerprints everywhere, about knowing the facts and just not knowing what to do. And I was feeling more and more for a tug for a decision, that just sitting on this fence was not getting me anywhere. And she said, after listening to me sort of rattle on the way you guys have politely been listening to me rattle on, <laughs> Jen, I don't want to scare you, but I think that God is pursuing you. Mm. And then she reminded me of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. <laughs> Here we if go. you guys have seen that movie, at the very end of the movie, uh -huh. he takes this leap of faith from the lion's head. And uh. he has no idea what's going to happen when he walks off that cliff over the chasm. But he just has to trust that when he does it, God will somehow get him across. And that clicked for me. That was exactly what I needed to hear. I didn't know what was going to happen if I decided to follow Jesus. Um, I didn't know what my parents would say or what my friends would say. But I had to trust that when I took that step of faith, God would be there to hold me up. Mm. And he did. In Christ, I feel like I have found a deeper purpose in life. Mm. Um, beyond my own achievements, beyond the expectations of others. A reason, like King David, to sing and dance with all my might before the Lord. Um, Philippians 3.7 says, whatever was to my prophet, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. 
What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And at the end of the day, that's my deep hope is in Christ. And that's true. That's all true. Um, but I wish I could say that since that time, it's been nothing but strong faith, good soil, fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, <laughs> kindness, goodness, gentleness, pussy willows, and bunny rabbits. Um, but everyone who knows me at all knows that it's just not like that. Um, it's a daily battle for me. As the Apostle Paul said, what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And I've had periods where I've wanted to give up the faith, times in my life where I felt like I've had to choose between the love of my parents and following Christ. Mm-hmm. But like Peter, who responded when Jesus asked his disciples if they wanted to leave him like the others were doing, mm. my cry is, Lord, to whom shall we go? Mm. You have the words of eternal life. Mm. And then there's this issue of grace, God's grace, undeserved, unearned, still totally incomprehensible to me mm. when I really stop to think about it. Yeah. That God would love me and forgive me even when I miss those proverbial two points on the test. Huh. Um, as the Apostle Paul said in Romans, uh, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm still a perfectionist and I fall short every single day. I struggle to give myself grace which I think just means I struggle daily to really accept God's grace. Um, And I wonder what it looks like for Mm -hmm. us to live a life that reflects this awesomeness of God's love and grace. I wonder what it looks like for us as a community Mm -hmm. to reflect that awesomeness of God's love and God's grace. Mm -hmm. For me, um, I cling on to Hebrews 12 too. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is the author of my faith. He was the one that pursued me. And he will perfect my faith. Not me, not by anything that I can do, and not by anything that I've ever done, Mm. but by Christ alone. Yeah. Thank you. Let me, let me pray for you a second. Thanks. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for the stories that we've heard this morning from the Bible and from Jen's life. Thank you for her telling us and closing with grace, sheer, utter, undeserved grace. And I pray that as we process our own stories, that the power of the resurrection will make grace come alive in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks.